Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode, I'm in Queensland at the offices of Cochrane Entertainment. The former chairman of Supercars, Tony Cochrane, and I have been tic tacking during the chaos of COVID for what seems like an eternity, trying to organise this one because so many of you have asked for it. It's great that the planets have finally aligned. To know TC or Coco is to know that he's outspoken and unapologetically so. He's got strong views and absolutely earned the right to them. He's also tough on himself when things don't go to plan. More on that later. Now, you know my policy on these pods. It's the guest in their words, and often you can find the balance or right of reply on some subjects in other pods in our Rusty's Garage Library. We'll talk about his early years in the lighting business, the approaches and meetings to get him involved in supercars. There's yarns on that topic you're unlikely to have ever heard before. How he felt about selling and the end of his incredible chapter with the sport. You'll love the insights on working with the great Barry Sheen, and I know you want his thoughts on the current era of supercars too. We go there, but remember, he's not big on constantly throwing stones from the sidelines. Some might argue what worked so well in his chapter may not be right for now. Conversely, the Hall of Famer has some seriously impressive runs on the board when it comes to promoting, and there are all sorts of remarkable Reminders around us as we record here of the big names and A-list acts and shows that he's played such an important part in during a life devoted to entertainment and sport. We'll also talk about his role now with the Gold Coast Suns AFL team when things don't go right, as I said, in the risk-reward business that he's entrenched in. The cool car in his garage, working with the Rolling Stones and a whole lot more. More than two and a half hours split into three parts and all there for you to enjoy right now. I'm grateful that Tony's been so generous with his time. But instead of opening the batting with early life, as I often do with these podcasts, we're going to spend some time talking two wheels and a world championship supercross project that is clicking up a gear and has serious potential it's interesting how life works sometimes i guess but um it's uh, i never seem to have a short story all the long stories <laughs> but uh, the um this situation came about really because um Ryan Sanderson, who used to work for me back in the V8 supercar days, um, he and um, a great buddy of his, Adam Bailey, probably seven years ago, I guess now, started up a business called AusX Open, which was fundamentally an exhibition way to showcase some of the world's best supercross riders in Stadia. Um, they started up in Sydney and then um, subsequently um, did Sydney for a number of years and then um, did a couple of events in New Zealand and then moved it in 2019 to Marvel Stadium uh, to grow it even bigger. And uh, on that journey, they asked me, would I come on board and be their chairman? And it was really a mentoring role, to mm-hmm. be truthful, and I was happy to do that, help two young guys who were having a fair income crack with their own money, which... Um, they clearly impressed you, even back from from the supercars days and, and what they were doing. What was it that, that you 
saw in them? Was it the events and, and what they'd achieved with their, their own wherewithal? What was it that stood out for you? Yeah, look, I admire anybody that has a go. You know, it's really, really easy. One of the, when you get older and a bit wiser, one of the easiest things that um, um, people do is criticise. Mm-hmm. Um, and Australians are classics at being critics you know you often um you often read somebody you know who will bash out a few words and you know be super critical of what somebody else is doing but you know have they ever tried to do it themselves or had a real go themselves in 99% of cases the answer is no they're just a smart ass who think that they you know that they can throw opinions from a thousand miles away Mm. so I really admired the fact that these two young guys had stumped up with their own money and and had a real crack and had made a reasonably good fist of it, you know. I mean, it wasn't um, it wasn't some multi million dollar business, but it you know it, they'd done a good job of it. And um, anyway, so I got involved and gave them a bit of strategic direction and gave them a bit of you know, um, um, as it were, coco faith in how you push hard and push mm-hmm. further and push forward. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, during uh, 2019, um, we started to get rumours um, out of the FIA where, um, you know, we got some good connections, um, that um, the FIA had had a gutful of the way that Feld had handled the World Championship because, for again, for the benefit of your listeners, the FIM Supercross World Championship had been run for 24 years in one country, which is not quite the concept of a World Championship. As much as the Americans who love, you know, they've got the World Series baseball and Americans love, you know, and truly believe that, you know, the whole world starts in New York and ends in LA and you go, uh, if you want to go overseas for holidays, you go to Hawaii. Um, and guess what? They've got the same currency. It's amazing. Um <laughs> So um, that had permeated for a long time and the FIM had been up with it for a long time and there's all sorts of stories. I don't know what to believe. I wasn't personally involved. Funnily enough, it wasn't very different. I, I go back far enough to the um, Sheeny days of um, and, um, you know, the, the situation that existed in, in the late 80s and early 90s in North America with the American uh, 500cc championship, mm. which was regarded as a, you know, dominant championship of the world until Dorna came along and started to um, take it onto a global platform. And, and of course, over time, the American championship died and, mm-hmm. and you look at the magnificent success Dorna have made today of the 500cc world championship. But so we, we were aware of this um, and, um, you know, being Aussies who love to have a go, we we debated and, and, and spent a bit of time trying to work out, you know, do you think we could have a crack at taking on the FIM Supercross World Championship? And, you know, you, those meetings, all those fun and interesting. Well, I find them fun and interesting, I guess, but I'm a warp bit of a... Why? Know, Why? Because they sort of, you know, you're from Australia. What the hell would you know about doing this sort of global thing or yeah, what's the all reaction? Of that, all yeah. of that. You know, you're three guys sitting in a room in Melbourne, Australia, and, you, and you're, you're dreaming big, but you, you, you know, how, how the hell do we actually do this, you know? Um, so we, we, anyway, we um, messed around with it and drew up various models and stuff. And then, of course, COVID hit mm-hmm. and um, they got shut down like most people in the world. I think... You know, Feld in America went from having um, 1,800 staff within two weeks. They had, you know, 30 or something, you know. Um, um, so they're a very big entertainment mm. group. In actual fact, motorsports, the the bike, um, Supercross was only a really small part of their overall business. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, that, that impact of COVID globally, in the, particularly in the entertainment and sports industries and the tourism industries was just, you know, massive, just just killed off so many people and, and it's put the, um, you know, made the job so hard. And it still does today and it mm. will be ongoing. In my opinion, I think we're three years away from getting clear of it. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway... Um, then when we were coming out of COVID last year, so 2020, I guess, um, we we again heard strong rumours that the uh, contract, which was up for renegotiation in November of last year, um, that um, the FIM would look to appoint a new operator for the FIM World Supercross. Mm-hmm. So um, we really got our act together uh, that stage. It was um, still in sort of... You know, parts of Australia were still in COVID lockdown. Luckily for us here on the Gold Coast, we weren't. So we um, we already had um, – Sando was already living up here mm-hmm. and um, we arranged to get um, uh, Adam, you know, in the back of a car or hidden in a sheep truck or something. <laughs> um, and uh, so we all got around, you know, um, this very board table we're sitting at now and we really did brainstorm very thoroughly and then we brought in a couple of expertise to help us with modelling and what we were trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and we decided in July of last year, damn it, let's have a real crack. Look, there'll be big global groups that do it, but, you know, let's not die wondering. Mm. And um, so we put a really good team together to put a very, very interesting package to the FIM. We just focused on uh, on what we believe we could sell to the FIM. We, we didn't really focus on what um, the AMA and uh, Feld and people like that were doing because mm-hmm. that's none of our business really. It's They're entitled to do and think what they like. And then, um, lo and behold, um, in September last year, Feld announced they were giving up the FIM World Championship. They were just going to run purely an American domestic series under the AMA and, you know, they believed the, they were the, the world for Supercross and everybody mm-hmm. would keep coming there and, you know, um, so all's good in the world. And um, we um, we pushed on and um, subsequently won the rights um, and, you know, by the time we got through all the legals and all the other macerations of all of that, um, we didn't get the rights actually till Christmas Eve. Crazy. It was crazy and it was an exciting time and all the rest of it. Um, and in amongst all of that, um, we had a fantastic opportunity to – obviously, it requires a lot of funding. It's a it's an expensive exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted we, – we had several people wanting to fund it with us mm-hmm. um, based a bit on our track record but based on the fact that it's a World Series. Um, but we, we, we particularly, I was particularly keen for it to be a strategic partner. Mm-hmm. So I want, yes, great that you've got a big wallet. That's terrific. And, you know. Got to have the vision with us to share. Got to have the vision with us. Mm-hmm. And you've got to also be able to help us strategically around the world. Mm-hmm. And um, we were really fortunate because uh, Mubadala showed really keen interest almost from the first meeting. Um, you know, we're right at the bottom end of the sort of activities they do. We're in their, um, our particular businesses in what their sports and media fund, which is about an $80 billion fund. Mm-hmm. And that's the sport, their sports and media fund is the smallest of their funds. So it gives you an idea of their, you know, I think uh, globally, I think they're well over a trillion dollars um, under fund. And um, uh, so, you know, it just gave us an opportunity to really get together with some big boys uh, who've got some tremendous sports and media properties all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, help, you know, over the next three to five years to grow this and build this into a business. 
so all the planets aligned really and out of that we we got together a really great international board and um, we're now up up and running. We're going to do a very small pilot series this year because of the nature of how late we got it mm-hmm. and and because we did not want to interfere with the American series this year, either mm-hmm. um, Supercross or Motocross. So we were trying to be uh, partly respectful, mm-hmm. um, even though we've been accused of being uh, the opposite. The truth is um, we did make an attempt to be to show some respect and not mm-hmm. sort of rain on anybody's parade this year. Um, but the, the clear plan is that uh, we want to be really up and running properly for um, uh, full season starting June next year, June 23. So kickoff, if I've got this right, is is Cardiff, early uh, early October. You're coming to Australia as well. Ten teams. There's a, a local flavour, an international flavour about this. There are world champions that are a part of this. It's actually on paper a really good foundation to launch from, isn't it? Oh, it is. We've... Um, and, you know, great credit here to Adam Bailey. He's mm-hmm. done a superb job in Teamland, mm-hmm. um, what I call Teamland. So we, uh, again, we wanted to set it up very differently to the way the current uh, American Supercross is set up, mm-hmm. um, where basically every, anybody can turn up and, you know, you can try and enter and if you're lucky and you get through, you get through and you've got a weekend's racing. Um, that's obviously a really expensive model mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, it's great for the ones that get through. For the ones that don't get through, they've spent a lot of money actually not getting any visibility mm-hmm. um, uh, or going anywhere. So our model is um, very much on the modelling I originally started with the original V8 supercar right. uh, wreck mm-hmm. um, and we adapted some of that. Uh, we took some of the best out of the model that uh, Formula One has with their teams and, and a little bit out of the uh, – that's been used now in the NASCAR model have also gone to a franchise model. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, obviously it's a way that I'm really familiar with and what I like about it most, it empowers teams. Mm-hmm. So the teams actually get to go on the journey with you. So if the business builds, guess what? So does their equity because yep. the only way to come into our show is to buy out one of those existing 10 teams mm-hmm. because our 10 teams provide two riders in the 450cc championship and two riders in the 250cc championship. So um, that's their equity. They own that skin stakeholding. The they've got real yeah. genuine skin in. When they sit at a team owners meeting with us, mm. they've got genuine skin in seeing this thing grow and develop. Mm. And um, so we're aligned. Um, and, you know, we've uh, put considerable financial clout behind that. Over, I think it's over the first five years where we've committed to spending nearly $50 million on teams, prize money, appearance fees and the like. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we're, um, we're having a, a, a f- absolute 100% fair dinkum crack at it. And, and, you know, we're really proud of that because um, for all the knockers and what have you out there, we're the very first Australian company ever to run an FIM or an FIA World Championship. Hmm. Huge. You walked the line there before. How much resistance have you had from the States? Are constituents buying into this and, and what's, the, you know, what's the groundswell like over there? Because it is such a heartland for this game, isn't it? Oh, it is, and you know, and and let's let's be honest here. We it, we're running a proper world championship, so we'll go to the United States once. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you know, we you know we'll we'll touch base on their soil once, and mm-hmm. you know we'll we'll go to um, other countries around them and and the like. But um, we, look, we we're really focused on our gig. I mean, you know, we've copped a fair bit of uh, flack from um, them and some of the American distributors and and others and. 
um, all the rest of it. Just row your own boat, basically. Yeah. But, yeah, mm. but, you know, look, we, <laughs> long time ago I learnt, you know, it's, it's not a lot of time. It's not worthwhile time mm. if you spend looking over the fence trying to work out what your neighbour wants to do. You're much better getting on with your thing and building your thing. And, it, you know, many of my war stories now from the V8 days – lo and behold, are bubbling to the surface. We're having the same issues, the same problems, the same experiences, good, bad and indifferent, Mm -hmm. that I had in the early days when I started V8 Supercar. You know, everybody reflects back and says, oh, look how well it grew and how easy it was and all of that. But, you know... Rusty, the truth is the first three or four years were really tough. Mm. So you've, you've identified coming out of, you know, it's going to take us a while to get out of this COVID period and so on. You're going to, you're going to gradually build here. Where do, you want, where do you see this thing ultimately going? What's it going to look like in five years' time in your mind? Well, you know, um, again, what, all you can do is put the spade in the dirt and try mm. and turn it over and make it work. Mm. Um, uh, but our, our, our dream... And is to grow it to 16 international rounds by the fifth year. So uh, we, we're very confident next year we'll have somewhere low end between nine and high end 11 with, with, with fast turnaround, like like a week apart or something, if you go country some, to country? Some are a week yeah. apart. We're, we're air freighting everything. We've, mm-hmm. we've come up with specialised air cargo. I mean, one of the benefits of bikes is they don't take up a lot of room. Mm. Um, so we, we've come up with an air freight, concept and palletisation that basically will go in any um, international aircraft. So we're not reliant on freighters or any Mm -hmm. of that. Um, So, yeah, some weeks we'll be back-to-back turnarounds and other times we'll have a three-week or four-week gap as we change continents perhaps or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, And also you have to fit in with, you know, a world schedule because Mm -hmm. uh, we – Again, next year, to you know, to try and do the right thing by the Americans, we're not going to race in the AMA part of the year. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, in the AMA um, Supercross part oh, of the year. year. So yeah. they race between January and early May. So we're going to not start racing till the end of May and uh, race through to um, sort of middle uh, of November. Mm-hmm. Adam and Ryan did a great job. I mean, I worked on a number of those um, AusX Open uh, telecasts and things. They were a great stadium, spectacular. That appeals to you, I know, in, in, in terms of um, what, what an audience would love, what a young audience loves in terms of fast turnaround on, on things from a, a, a attention span, a connectivity style thing with your partners and so on. What are you going to do that's maybe a little, a little different or, or is it about being the essence of that and the World Championship? You know, these are great shows, mate. That's what you're endeavouring to, to do here. It's entertainment at the end of the day that you, you love, isn't it? Yeah, look, it is. It is. And, and this is going to be an incredibly long answer, Rusty, mm-hmm. but I want to take you on a journey a bit here because cool. it's one of the core things that we recognised in this. Um, the... Fan of today, mm. particularly the young fan, wants really good comfort. They want to be able to see it all. They're not interested in watching just part of the track anymore. Mm-hmm. That, that's a real challenge for motorsports, mm-hmm. right? Um, they are attention span poor. In other words, anything that goes for longer than about 15 minutes, they tend to start Forget switching it. off, yep. right? So all our ra- races during the night are sort of sub-15 minutes. Mm-hmm. But most importantly of all, um, and, you know, one of our directors, Tavo uh, Hellman, who, the yes. great American who, who started um, the Grand Prix in, in Texas and built the Circuit of the Americas and, and then refired up the Mexican Grand Prix in um, 
Mexico City. Uh, this is Tarbo's point, and it's a really valid point. If you look at the last 30 odd years, Ball sports have gone from playing in stadia and facilities that were subpar. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the seating was shit or non-existent. You slid down the side of a hill if it was a wet day or you got dusty if it was a dry day. Um, uh, the food, if you could call it that, was horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a pretty terrible experience. Now, ball sports all over the world have woken up to that and they've all created world-class stadia for their ball sports. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter which country in the world you're looking, um, uh, they've created some fabulous experiences mm-hmm. to, to watch, whether it's soccer, football codes, NFL, AFL, it doesn't matter. Um, that hasn't happened with motorsport. Motorsport, with the exception of a couple of Formula One events, by and large, is still a pretty crappy experience. Mm-hmm. You still go almost to the middle of nowhere to watch it, generally speaking, because generally speaking, the circuits are so big, they have to be well out of cities yep. um, or the race tracks or the, the dirt bike tracks or whatever they are. Um, the, um, uh, for the main part, the uh, seating is temporary. So motorsport just has not taken that ride over that 30 years that ball sports have. Mm. Now, where we're quite unique we're a motorsport product that by its very nature has to be in stadia. Hmm. So we get the best of both worlds. So because of this huge, and there's been something like 300 major stadiums built around the world in the last 30 years Hmm. that can hold 40,000 or more people, because we've got that as our playing surface, uh, we pick up all those benefits. Hmm. So we can put on a world-class uh, FIM World Supercross in a beautiful stadium. By and large, they exist prominently in the middle of cities. Um, so they've got great access, great transport facilities, great transport leaks. Uh, they've got wonderful food and beverage experiences uh, both at the stadium and, and adjacent. Uh, obviously, all the things like great seating, to- proper toilets, all of that's taken care of and great viewing. Mm. So every one of our fans, even our fans sitting in the worst seat, can watch the whole of the race track. Mm. So that's a unique proposition. So this is one motorsport product that actually can tick all those boxes. Um, now, what we wanted to do on top of that was make sure that we gave a unbelievable fan experience. So our program takes about four hours. Mm-hmm. It's made up of a number of heats and races, getting to um, the ultimate winner of in the case of Melbourne, the Australian Supercross Grand Prix uh, 450cc champion and the uh, 250cc champion uh, get determined. But, you know, then we've, we've put around it a lot of really great entertainment, both artists and FMX uh, exhibition Beautiful. stuff. In mm-hmm. uh, actual fact, what we're trying to do is keep the show going for the whole night. We've gone down a very different track. We've gone down giving an immersive, exciting fan experience night where even a fringe fan mm. of Supercross can come along and go, holy shit, that was a great night. Mm. I, I've had a truckload of fun. And what these guys do is amazing. Mm. I mean, you know, we've got 10 teams, 40 of the world's very best riders, um, all battling it out. And then in every country we go to, we allow a couple of wild uh, spots um, to the give locals a, to show the talent. Well, yeah, to give yeah. a local a chance. Mm. Who, who's to say that when we go next year to France, there's not some French kid mm. who 
probably can cut the mustard, but has he ever been given a shot on the world stage? Mm, or, so, ne- or the next Chad Reed here or something, yeah. Correct, yeah. Mm, every mm, time. So mm. we're going we're gonna to give those young guys a chance to mix it. Yeah. They're up for it. They're up for it. If they're not, they're not. Mm. But at least we'll be giving them a chance because we're trying to grow the sport. I mean, one of the fund- fundamental things I believe in in um, motorsports is you should be growing the sport as well. Mm. It's not just growing the fan base. You've got to grow the sport as well. The two, the two it's a symbiotic relationship. And I think a lot of um, people have taken their eyes off that ball in my observation in motorsport over the last, you know, 10 or so years. Mm-hmm. In relation to this, TV is a is a, an important part of it, right? So you've secured what I think is one of the best blokes in the game internationally, let alone locally. A guy called Nathan Prendergast, who's my old colleague from from Supercars. In the growing team of people that you have for this, he's a, he's an important part of it. Open question: Were you surprised they did not fence him in at Supercars when the new ownership group came in because I would have thought one of the first things you would do is is fence in a couple of key people to prevent them from going. Great coup by you guys. Fabulous that you could get him. Were you surprised they didn't do that? Um, well, to be honest, I don't know how, you know, how they're running the business. So, mm. no, I, mm. I really probably almost can't comment there. We, we, you know, we had two or three people that we were quite keen to um, and we had a crack at two or three of them and um, then we had another probably four or five that wanted to – that had a crack at joining us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, uh, Nath is, you know, special. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he is a world-class operator. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's done – you know his background. So he, he's had a crack at several big uh, events overseas, including Dakar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he comes with a truckload of experience. Um, I've obviously known the guy for a long time. So, mm. um, you know, he was employed in my time at Supercars. Mm-hmm. Um, Will you do some good things in that telecasting space with what you're yeah, planning to Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, that's why we wanted him because, mm. again, you know, if you look at the current Supercross telecasting, it's pretty it's, – it's not great TV. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's done – You want that experience It's to done be good to a budget. Mm. We, we, want to, we want to elevate it. We mm. want it to be amazing. Now, some of the technology we want to bring on, we can't bring on for this year because it can't be ready in time, can't be tested sufficiently in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, by next year, we'll have all of that technology into the broadcast. And, and Nath is just a, such an integral part of that. Mm. Plus, he's just a dead set great bloke, bloke. to work mm. with. I mean, mm. you know that. Mm. I mean, he, he, he is uh, – I, I love the guy. Mm. You know, I, he's just a really top bloke. And um, he gets on super with uh, both Ryan and, mm. and Adam. And, um, you know, he'll he's fit – fitted right into our team um and um yeah look we 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 couldn't be happier that he's on board and and quite a few of the international telecasters who have joined us have made the same comment oh well if he's on board then you're obviously going to do a really good job of this so we'll have a crack Mm. i think we've already signed up something like 48 broadcasters around the world it's not a bad effort when you don't have any product no that's (laughs) fabulous two two part question to wrap up this chapter here one about about kind of future of um of motorcycling and and, uh, and and young people and their engagement with that, but also to just on on the broadcasting side because at the moment there is still a level of of um, traditional thirst and want from either a, either pay television or, or in some cases um, you know your, your normal uh, television channels here. But a lot of sports have pushed and are pushing into their own space where you'll go direct to customer and so on. Is that something that's burbling away in the back of the minds of you guys and and things like that? Yeah, well, um, firstly, um, I, I think that's a reflection of how young people think. Mm. 
I mean, it's it's really interesting. You you can meet young people today and talk to them about free to air broadcasting. They don't have a clue what you're talking about. Would never have watched it. Yeah. Never watched it. Yeah. <laughs> so you've um, got to be careful what you wish for. Um, but the, the the truth of the matter is, um, we have got some really good expertise uh, globally in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been. Uh, well served by Mubadala, mm-hmm. uh, introducing us to some really top line people both out of Europe and America. And so we're analysing all this very carefully. And I think what we'll end up with is a number of broadcasters, whether they be streaming partners, whether they be free to air broadcasters, whether they be, um, you know, uh, yep. KOs mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll also have an OTT platform awesome. that, you know, that people can subscribe to and they can get. Extra content. Extra and, content mm, and behind-the-scenes stuff. And, excellent. And, you know, um, a monthly or a weekly, eventually it'll become weekly, it won't mm. start weekly, um, a program about what's going on in the world because, um, Rusty, it, it's pretty hard when you've got to, you know, you've got to try and entertain fans that are down in Argentina yeah. at the same yeah. time you're entertaining fans that are in Japan yes. and entertaining fans in, um, you know, Dunedin in New Zealand. Mm. So um, you've got to have a pretty wide remit of how you go about, Mm. if I can use the very loose term broadcasting Mm. um, in this day and age. Nothing, uh, you know, it's it's such a changing world now. Mm. I mean, it's just just extraordinary how wide that dimension has become. And the one product in all of that that is meaningful, Mm. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a free-to-air telecaster, you're a streaming service, you're an OTT platform, uh, or whatever you may be. The one thing that's compelling is sport. Mm. Sport is at the very top of the tree for one simple reason. No one knows the results. Mm. Uh, Sport is one of the very few things you cannot time shift. Mm. You time shift it, somebody leaks you the results or you hear the results, the whole thing's ruined for you. So sport is at the top of the list of being compelling for all of those operators. Mm. They're all rushing around the world trying to sign up, trying to get involved, trying to carry as much high-level content sport as possible mm. because it is, it, it is the go. Hearing stories from Tony really makes me think, hey, maybe I should be an entrepreneur. My first idea? I'll reveal next guest. Got to get a prototype first. Young kids... Uh, are big on electrification with cars and, and so on. At the same time, the you know the purists that love motorcycle racing uh, love their four strokes or two strokes or whatever it might be. What's that delicate line like as you walk forward here? Because th- th- is there a want from the manufacturers to to uh, gradually involve a bit of that electrification side, or is this at the moment purely about about the enthusiast that loves um, four stroke and two stroke motorcycles? Uh, well, again, there's lots of parts to that answer. Um, it's not a straightforward yes or no answer. Hmm. So the first part is that um, uh, dirt bike sales all over the world are going through the gazooka. Yes. I mean, they're doing... Even in COVID, they uh, went crazy, didn't they? It's, it's yeah, nuts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's nuts. There's, there's, there's no um, dirt bike manufacturer that can, that can truly look you in the eye and say, oh, yeah, we're absolutely keeping up with production because they're not. Hmm. Um, and so we've got seven manufacturers potentially who can be in the championship right now. Next year it'll be eight because Triumph joins um, the the championship because Mm -hmm. of their um, entry into dirt bike racing Mm -hmm. uh, and dirt bike manufacturer generally. Uh, Then you've got 
at least one other in Europe who probably is going to be there in 24 and one other out of India that probably wants to be there by 24 or 25. So the 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 dirt bike manufacturing segment is, is growing mm. uh, and possibly there'll be nine or ten within a further two years. Uh, there's already seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, it's it's a very strong marketplace to be operating in um, all over the world. I don't know, it's just unique to, yes, they, 30% of their market is the United States of America, uh, but th- the moment you say that statistic, of course, that means 70% is everywhere else. Mm. So there is a huge global demand. Um, we are going to go to a, um, uh, for want of a better word, a clean fuel uh, probably for the 23 season. Excellent. Um, couldn't make it happen in time for this year, but mm-hmm. certainly I, I don't see any reason why we won't have that uh, in 23, mm-hmm. um, which will uh, be a biodegradable fuel. So, um, you know, that's uh, the first step. The next part is in our FIM rights, we also hold the rights to electric. So if at some point in time uh, where the manufacturers deem that electric's important, uh, we already hold those rights. We can start well to go in that direction. Hmm. Um, and we may we may do that by some demonstration stuff initially. We may do it by, um, you know, some junior development racing that we allow on our program. Uh, as I said, we one of the cores of our sort of premise for Bean is to grow the sport of Supercross worldwide. And, you know, and that starts with kids riding 50 cc's. You know, hmm. that doesn't start... Uh, when you've got a 19-year-old who suddenly decides he wants to buy a 250cc bike. So there's a lot of work to do uh, in that space. And um, if, if I've been able to answer your question uh, in part uh, with uh, the sort of quick synopsis I've given of, of that space, uh, so be it. But, you know, look, it, it's going to change. Over the course of the next 20 years, we, we hold the rights for 20 years. Over the course of the next 20 years, it's going to change. I've got a question. I've got some from from uh, various fans that have chimed in that I hope you don't mind uh, taking. They're on all, all different um, topics. One of them here has not come. Too many expletives. No, no, there, no, 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 no. They're all good. They're good. They're, they're actually quite good. Really thought provoking ones. Some of them are quite common, so we'll bounce through them. But but here's one from Ben Townley, who's been an MX2 world champion, well known Kiwi. Um, he says, long time listener, first time caller. Really keen to hear you chat to him about WSX. I'd be keen to hear his overall thoughts on it, especially being an outsider to the sport with his history and achievements in the four wheel promotion. What can be achieved with this platform? Now you've covered a lot of that, a lot of that there. We've got, you know, you've got a long time love of, of, of cars and motorsport um, generally. But I think where he's going here is your your broad entertainment perspective and what you've looked at with Adam and with Ryan and what you might perhaps do um, differently to, to change this up for the, the entertainment side? Yeah, well, clearly, uh, I, uh, I am uh, no expert on anything two wheels. Mm. Right? But he, here's another trick. I was no expert on anything four, four wheels. wheels. I, mm. I was never a, a race car driver. I, was, I never came through any sort of uh, uh, interest as in, you know, getting behind the wheel or being a mechanic or mm. that, that wasn't my background. My background was all those one of being you know, the entrepreneur, the promoter. Mm. Um, so I'm not viewing this any differently. I, I am certainly not sitting in meetings giving direction about, you know, uh, what tyres the guys should be running on or, you know, yep. <laughs> uh, you know the, the, uh, the, the two-stroke engine should be a four-stroke engine or the four-stroke <laughs> engine should be a two-stroke engine. That is not my role. Mm. We've got some great expertise um, Kev Williams, mm. you know, Adam himself, you know, Adam was, you know, a 
a quite a decent rider yes. in his own right in his in his day. Still enjoys it now, I think. Still occasionally. enjoys it now. Mm. So you know, we've got a lot of expertise sitting around the table who have the expertise of the sport. Mm. That is, that is not Tony Cochran's role. Mm. Um, and thank God, by the way, <laughs> thank God. Um, but the, my role is to try and help the guys see the big picture. My role is to try and roll out uh, the business. Uh, give it some platform, uh, um, ensure that we can find a way to grow, um, uh, have some vision, um, you know, and that's probably the biggest thing that I am is I'm kind of, uh, kind of a visionary guy. Mm. And and vision fails too, by the way. Mm. You know, I mean, I've, I've had plenty of mistakes in my life mm. um, and plenty of critics around those mistakes, but that does not stop me from seeing an opportunity and seeing the vision of that opportunity. And I, I think the opportunity here is immense, mm. absolutely immense. I mean, you basically had a world-class sport that's been landlocked in the USA for 24 years-ish. Mm. Uh, yes, it has moments where it has a flourish in uh, exhibition events, whether they be in Australia, New Zealand or France mm. or um, Brazil uh, or uh, Sweden, yes, but this is an opportunity to expand world supercross right across the planet, which will only encourage young people to take it up. It'll encourage uh, the use of these bikes more in a recreational sense. Mm. Uh, it will give the opportunity to find the next uh, star out of New Zealand or out of uh, Peru or out of uh, Brazil mm -hmm. or out of France or out of Japan, Sweden or wherever. Mm -hmm. wherever mm -hmm. right? And um, uh, we believe we can grow interest in the sport. We believe we can create more fans to Supercross than currently exist. And there are a lot. When you actually, when you look at the sort of research that we went into for this, and we spent a lot of money on that research, there are an awful lot of uh, fans out there who are just not being serviced, as I would say. Mm. And um, we're going to we're going to we're going to try and service them and expand the interest in in Supercross generally, which has got to be good for. You know, every layer of the sport all mm. over the world, it doesn't matter where the layer comes in, if they've got a pinnacle, if they've got a focus point, it's got to help build the layer of the land across the world in Supercross. Can I rewind the clock immensely here now to very, um, the very beginning of all this chapter for you? You're originally from South Australia, now a proud Queenslander. How did this all begin for you, this whole entrepreneurial show-style journey? Was it... Tony Cochran and a, and a Holden panel van and a set of lights and things like that going and, and doing events. How did that all start? You're not far off. It was actually a Falcon. A Falcon, um, was it? <laughs> look, as stupid as it may seem. So um, uh, this is boring for most people. It's not, but it's not. I, yes, I started in Adelaide. I started in um, concert lighting production um, uh, with a partner, Phil Hattie, and we, we started a very small business called High Watt Lighting. Uh, we were both still at school. Um, uh, did you always have that entrepreneurial side at school? Were you always thinking of... of you know, yeah, yeah, I did. I, in fact, I only stayed on and did my f and tried to make out I was doing year 12 because um, I managed to convince everybody that I would run the year 12 camp that year. And so my first step in that was to get a dollar off everybody per week towards the camp. So when they turned up at the camp, they had the best lineup of entertainment they'd ever seen. I mean, you know, it was quite funny. Um, but I really enjoyed all of that sort of stuff, um, you know, and um, uh, sort of so production lighting got me into um, 
building this small company up in Adelaide uh, with Phil and the guys and, and uh, we expanded, we got into audio, we sort of got into um, domestic lighting, um, then we bought out a business in Adelaide called Wavels, which was a major party hire business and um, I, I don't know, maybe I got to my mid-twenties or something like that uh, and I decided that it wasn't long-term for me as in the sense that I had been observing and watching and, and worked out that the, the role and the job that I really liked was being the uh, promoter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of morphed myself sideways into that with a couple of different manoeuvres and, and got involved in a couple of national tours in a small way uh, and then probably got my first really big break by um, um, doing the ultimate event at Sanctuary Cove to open Sanctuary Cove and I, I subsequently brought out, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra and Whitney Houston and Clive James and a bunch of other entertainers to be a big part of what turned into, you know, be one of Australia's biggest ever parties in the first week of January in 1988. Amazing. So that's kind of a quick Cook's tour of, you know, of of how I sort of got from downtown Adelaide in a, in a little shop to doing a few things on a bigger scale and and um, cranking off on my own. Most people listening, me included, if you were in a room with Mick Jagger or Whitney Houston or Frank Sinatra would be almost speechless. Were you ever daunted by those people or did you immediately connect with them? And how did you go with the phone calls of, g'day, Tony Cochran here, we'd love to run this. Will you be, will you be involved? <laughs> people that know me well say he's a pretty good talker. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, look, I, I, no, I've always been a reasonably confident sort of person, mm. um, sort of from, you know, latter teenage years anyway, onwards. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I, I don't know why I've always loved having a crack. I've mm. always loved having a go. And um, I've had this sort of little he- thing in the back of my head of saying, you know, oh, have a shot, you know, if you fail, you fail. Mm. And then I get really down when I do fail. That's really, that's really the dichotomy of me. Um, I hate failing, so when I do fail, I, I'm not a, I'm not a happy camper at all. But it, I, I've always bounced back. I've always said, "Oh, go again." You know, mm-hmm. fail oh, doesn't matter. Go again. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I've, I, um, I, I guess I, I, two things probably interacted. Um, one, I love to have a crack. And two, I love to put unique things together, particularly unique things that people say. The best thing anybody can say to me is, oh, that won't work. Because hmm. um, <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like lighting a fuse. Ah, oh, Rusty, it's like lighting a fuse. <laughs> and, um, uh, and away I go. And, and, and you know, and then um, uh, I was in the entertainment business and, and uh, did pretty well, did really well out of a, a um, tour of Frank Leiser and Sammy, the three of them together. Amazing. Um, which I did, uh, my joint venture partner and on that was Michael Gedinski, yes. Frontier Touring mm. and, and Michael Chug. I probably knew Chuggy a lot better than I knew Gedinski back in those days. And, you know, um, um, sort of been in those two's back pockets on and off over 40 odd years, had some magnificent arguments and had some magnificent wins. So, you know, it's been a kind of labour of love. Uh, and then I got involved with IMG because IMG wanted to get into um, sport. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I apologise. IMG wanted to get into um, entertainment. Mm-hmm. So uh, the IMG boss in those days in Australia was James Erskine. Mm-hmm. And James Erskine um, 
we had a joint venture together and we lost money on it. Um, and he said, look, don't worry about paying back your share. Come and work for me for a year and, and help us show us entertainment. And again, landed on my feet completely because I was barely in the building um, working with them for six months, I reckon it was. And um, my... Uh, um, uh, uh, great one, one of my great mates at, at that time um, in um, the notorious Harry M. Miller and <laughs> um, trying to also think who, who else was involved in Superstar uh, in day one. Um, he says looking around Ga- the room. Gary Van, Gary Van Egmont, sorry, I'm having <laughs> mental blank. And Gary Van Egmont came up with the idea of doing Superstar in arenas. Um, so we're talking now about 19... Maybe 1990, something like that, 91. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm up for that. That sounds great, you know. And then I felt, oh, you know, I've now done this bit with IMG. I've really got to bring them into it. And I can't, you know, leave them out. So I um, uh, took, you know, a third into IMG and convinced James it was a good deal and they jumped on board. And of course, that was just massive. It was mm. just a huge, huge um, success. Mm. Um, what are we talking there? Uh, Kate Sobrano, John Stevens. Um, yeah. yeah, Kate Sobrano, mm. John Stevens. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I've got a mental blank on the other. I did go and see it and I loved it. I thought it was tremendous. Yeah. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. John Farnham was the key. Oh, John, correct, John, correct. John, yeah. John, was, John played Jesus. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was a terrific uh, cast. Originally, Anthony Wallow was actually going to be wow. um, in it and then he got sick right um, on the start of rehearsals and uh, so we had to replace uh, Anthony. Um but um, it was a terrific uh, show and a terrific mm. cast and, and we really pulled it off and really created something unique in Australian entertainment history. I think we ended up doing something like 70 <laughs> arenas around. We went around Australia three times. And so that was all great. And then um, so I, I had this three or four year period with IMG, which every year we'd get into an argument about. I'd say, I've done my year. I'm out of here now. I want to go back and work for myself. I don't like working for other pricks. And, um <laughs> Um, was it said just like that too? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, and, um, you know, I remember I had a couple of fascinating phone calls from Cleveland with uh, the late and great Mark McCormick who started mm. that business, you know, mm. um, um, and full, full kudos to him. I mean, he invented the sports management business. So uh, Mark was a, a genius and well ahead of his time. Um, but, you know, I really didn't get on. I probably wasn't the kind of guy who, you know, uh, Cleveland head office and I sort of didn't get on. They wanted all these reports all the time and I'm not big on writing reports. Mm-hmm. I'm, much, I'm, much, I'm much better at doing than, than you know, uh, bashing out um, copious notes on something. So um, we, we just did this crazy thing every year and James would try and talk me into carrying on another year and, you know, then they throw more money at me or, you know, hmm. I used to be famous for throwing a new title at me. You see, you know, I'd, I'd end up with a new title every year. In amongst all of that, um, uh, Sheeny, Barry Sheen, mm. um, had moved back to Australia yep. and he was sort of being looked after in principle by James Erskine. Mm-hmm. But I lived on the Gold Coast and so did Sheeny. So I sort of, by default, sort of took over running Sheeny's Sheeny. life Lovely. Uh, yeah. from a commercial point of view. Yeah. Uh, as much as you can. Nobody ever ran Sheeny's life. Sheeny yeah. ran his own life. I mean, Sheeny was a, one of the greatest geniuses with uh, sponsorship and um, sponsorship of self that I've ever come across yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. If he had have written a book on it, it would have been a bestseller. Yeah. Um, so uh, Sheeny and I became great, but yeah. mate, I mean, we, he was 
part lunatic and so was I and, and um, we he, I loved his sense of humour mm. and um, you hit it off didn't you mm. yeah we mm. really did hit mm. it off we were great mates um, anyway um, I then got approached during that time to um, uh, I knew John Fay a bit the then Premier of New South Wales mm-hmm. and he got one of his guys to ring me up and say look we're in a spot of bother we've got the world um, 500cc Grand Prix here at Sydney at Eastern Creek. You might recall they especially mm, built mm. the track at Eastern Creek yep. for, for the 500. And the um, contract was controlled and run in those days by the Auto Cycle Union of New South Wales, who had just gone um, bankrupt or sort of gone into liquidation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, well, that's great. You know, what's it got to do with me? Well, uh, Unfortunately, the way the contract's written, the government are now responsible for it. And um, this is like, this conversation's going on in like November, right? Yeah. And I go, yeah, but isn't it on in March? Yeah, 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 it's on in March. Uh, like, you know, four and a half months away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I said, well, okay, again, what's that got to do with me? Well, um, the Premier thought you might be the sort of person who could put a team together to run it because we've got to run it. We don't have any choice. We either just hand them the money and don't run it, which will be incredibly embarrassing for the government, mm. or we run it. And I said, oh, shit, I don't know, okay. So um, we sat around and um, had numerous meetings on it, and so I brought Sheeny in, of course. Yep. You know all things. Well, yeah, jeez, yep. cock, this would be great. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, oh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Sheeny and I over... Uh, a bottle of Chardonnay. Yeah, as he always uh, had with some ice in it. Com- complete with tippy ice blocks in it. Didn't matter whether you bought him a really good Chardonnay or a shitty one. They're, they're, they're obligatory ice blocks always ended up in his glass. Um, we brainstormed around um, his kitchen table uh, late one afternoon mm-hmm. uh, about, oh, yeah, we could, we could do this. We'd take this on. And anyway, and then I subsequently talked um, the powers that be at IMG into it and, you know, let's have a go. Mm worked out how much money we could possibly lose. You know, the government had underwritten a big chunk of it, so that was a good start. We had Eastern Creek booked and ready and willing, and we had uh, Dorna turning up with the championship. Um, so off we went on the great adventure of um, motorsport. motorsport. <laughs> how good's this? What could possibly go, go wrong? <laughs> anyway, so um, we, we ran it, and, yeah, we had a million and one hiccups and problems, but um, it was just... So much fun mm. just being with Sheeny and, uh, uh, you know, um, we we camped out together at uh, Parramatta uh, at the one decent hotel in those days that was out there and um, uh, Sheeny would run to the exact same format. We'd have dinner the same time every night and we'd eat in the same Italian restaurant Just down the road from the from trip. the Hilton or whatever it was. I can't remember. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. a Hilton. No, it wasn't was, a Hilton. It was I think it was else. a Park Royal. Park Royal. Well done. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, and we and we did this event. Of course, he introduced me to a lot of people in the Dorna paddock, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Mick Doohan, of course, was the champion, and yep. um, you know, and subsequently turned up and, and performed uh, quite well. Um, so uh, yeah, look, it was fun, and I think we, you know, we kept our head above water. We made a few bucks, and you know, Sheeny made a few bucks, mm-hmm. and he thought that was pretty good. And um, so I think we did one more year of that, mm-hmm. and then. Um, uh, a guy who I now deal with in AFL, so it's very funny. Uh, the world world just keeps turning. Um, Jeff Kennett was the then Premier of um, 
Victoria, and of course he stole it back yes. to um, Phillip Island, uh, Phillip Island mm-hmm. uh, where it's remained ever since, um, which is a great, wonderful circuit. I mm. love Phillip Island. It's a beautiful, beautiful circuit. Uh, if it was an hour closer to Melbourne, it would be one of the world's great circuits. Mm-hmm. It's probably just a little bit far out of Melbourne, but it's a tremendous, uh, tremendous facility and very well run by the Foxes. Anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, so we did two years of um, going bike racing and Sheenie and I sat down, had a few more obligatory Chardonnays at the end of that and <laughs> thought, hey, that was cracking, you know, good fun. And, of course, in amongst all of that, uh, we, we had a, you know, we had another brain wave that I'm, I'm, Sheenie wouldn't mind me just talking about now. Sheenie and I, um, in a, a half-drunken stupor one night, decided, oh, let's, let's go and buy out the FIM 500cc rights. Right, so uh, Dorna was uh, going through a period at that stage. It's probably about the early to mid nineties where they were a bit shaky and mm-hmm. had a few issues. So um, and Sheeny had all this. He knew chat. everything, didn't he? He knew yeah. everything yeah. and everybody. Yeah. And um, we've got to go and meet this guy. He'll, yeah, he'll yeah, sort yeah. it. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> Sheeny and I actually went off uh, uh, on a, a, a trip to. Uh, we started off. We flew to London um, at the pointy end of the plane, and you know that was always interesting with Sheeny because you had to stop him from smoking in the toilets because uh, uh, he used to take a packet of smokes, packet of chitane, yeah, on board, and a, a can of um, Mr. Sheen. And so, as he would be smoking into the toilet bowl, he'd be spraying over his head for the sensor. <laughs> He would, have, uh, he would have figured out this will stop it going off. Is that what he did? Correct. <laughs> and um, at the same time, uh, with the uh, head purser usually coming up saying to me, you're his manager, aren't you? We know he's smoking in there. You've got to stop him. I said, ma'am, I, never make, I never make a habit of walking into lock toilets. Um, so uh, she, she was just a... Just a buzz mm. travelling with Sheeny was mm. hilarious. Anyway, so we flew on to uh, Geneva and we had a big meeting with uh, the FIM and we tried to convince them that um, we were up for it. And um, and I and I, I think it probably you know what it was mad as an idea as it had. I, I think we probably could have bought out Dorna and done it. That's amazing. Uh, but what undid us was IMG just weren't interested. They thought it was a financial. Um, Miss they, okay. they they just because could. of the state they were in at the time or the or the, or yeah, the challenges yeah I and, think so yeah. and I think so so you know so that was kind of a flop failure and mm. Sheena and I were pretty cut up about that because we thought it really had some yards and mm. um, we probably didn't have a great deal of support within the IMG bandwagon to be truthful I mean mm. a couple of people probably James was a bit lukewarm interested but I kept most of the rest weren't that interested. That's the end of part one of my podcast with former supercars boss Tony Cochran. How good are the Barry Sheen stories? We really miss him. There are more of those to come. That's the good news. And what about that 500cc bit? I hadn't heard much about that before. What could have been? Don't forget, this is a mammoth three-parter. Tony loves a chat and there's lots of ground, lots of ground still to cover, including some of your questions. I won't get to all of them, thanks to everyone who commented on social media with things that you wanted me to hit him up on. Now, part two is all loaded up in the library for you to enjoy right now. So give it a listen when you've got time. From the Gold Coast Indie Carnival to the secret meets that led to supercars. A clever chess move to stage a rival Bathurst 1000 and what went on behind the scenes. Needing a bodyguard for a time. And the growth of the sport of V8 supercars. How the drivers became stars during a golden period for the sport. 
Listener.